Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Roadmap, the podcast on best practices and trending topics in auto finance. This is the second episode in our brand new monthly series of podcasts presented by the Center for Auto Finance Excellence through the support of Fiserv and Status Gifts. I just want to thank them both. I am Natalie Madelet, your host, and I'm also the deputy editor of Auto Finance News, and I'm really pleased to be bringing you this um, next episode in our series. As always, episodes of The Roadmap will be posted on our website at autofinanceexcellence.org. I'd also love to hear from you if you have any um, topics for the podcast you'd like us to cover or um, story ideas, you can always email me at nmattila at royalmedia.com. The substance of this podcast touches on just some of what we do at the Center for Auto Finance Excellence, and the information we cover in today's episode is also going to provide you a little taste of what you can experience at our upcoming Auto Finance Summit which is going to be October 25th through the 27th in Las Vegas. Um, If you haven't done so already, we encourage you to visit our website at autofinancesummit.com for more information and to register. Our goal here at The Roadmap is to welcome thought-provoking and enlightened guests from all across the auto finance industry to talk out key issues, opportunities, and trends in the industry, and we have a really great guest for this episode. Michael Vogan is an automobile economist in the credit analytics department at Moody's Analytics. Before joining Moody's, Michael was a research analyst at Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. He holds a master's degree in applied economics and econometrics from the University of Delaware and a bachelor's degree in economics from Bloomsburg University. I'm really pleased to welcome Michael to this episode of the Roadmap. So Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me, Natalie. Great. Well, um, so you developed a presentation on subprime autocratic navigating risks on the horizon. I wanted to see if you can provide our listeners with a brief overview of the presentation and some key takeaways for us. Absolutely. So the intention of creating the presentation was really to address um, concern in the industry that auto credit markets are somehow in a bubble, similarly uh, to mortgages from before the recession. Um, And I think this concern... Um, is held by a lot of analysts because of how fast um, auto lending has grown since the recession. Uh, So before the recession, there were about $800 billion in outstanding auto balances. Um, And as of July 2017, there were $1.16 trillion. Um, And part of that uh, growth in lending has been an expansion in the subprime space. Um, And I think that that's what really raises red flags for people, and that's when they start to draw that comparison to uh, the mortgage market and the run-up to the recession. Um, But my analysis suggests that most of the um, action we've seen in the subprime space is part of the natural credit cycle uh, for the auto credit market. So just as the economy gets better, credit standards uh, loosen, uh, credit is given out to consumers more freely, and then the market corrects itself eventually and starts to contract. Um, However, there are definitely significant levels of Uh, deep subprime credit, so uh, auto credit to consumers with very low credit scores in the non-bank space, uh, so like independent uh, finance companies and dealerships, um, lenders like that. Um, And that's really where we see the worsening performance. Uh, And that performance has uh, been compounded by um, residual value pressure in the used car market. Um, But overall, um, the auto lending industry is turning a corner right now. We're coming down on the other side of that expansion. 
Um, so we should start to see some of that subprime growth slow and performance to moderate. Gotcha. Would you say all subprime credit performance is worsening? Um, so it's really the deep subprime uh, categories where we see the most performance deterioration. Um, so by deep subprime credit, I mean consumers with credit scores between 300 and 529. Um, and that's where we're seeing loss rates of about 16% annualized. Um, so those are default rates. Um, and that's comparable to recession level highs for that segment. Um, we see performance deterioration by like a couple basis points in the other subprime segments, even as far down as uh, 530 to 620. Um, but those are really at levels comparable to before the recession. Um, so it seems like the most stress is really in that deep subprime category, particularly those loans originated by uh, non-bank lenders that I just spoke of. Well, given that um, the deep subprime lending has notably expanded in that non-bank auto space, I think the presentation mentions it reaches $38.9 billion outstanding in June 2017. Is this just a factor of heightened competition, or are there other key drivers? Yeah, so I think that, um, that heightened competition is probably the main driver. Um, and the reason for that is after the recession, um, the residential lending was obviously very risky. Um, and auto loans were attractive because um, auto-backed securities, the returns were pretty robust during the recession relatively. Um, and also, auto loans and leases have some of the shortest terms of all the different credit segments. Um, so what that means is a lot of the bad auto credit that was originated before the recession got wiped clean in about three years. Um, so that was a very attractive place for the banks to start lending, especially in conjunction um, with the insatiable uh, vehicle demand that built up during the recession when new car production was slashed. Um, uh, another piece, uh, uh, in addition to the competition, um, it could be that now we have better analytical capabilities for um, risk modeling and repossession technology. Um, whether or not that actually uh, decreases asymmetric information in the lending process, I think that remains to be seen. But it could definitely be the case that lenders with these better quantitative techniques or repossession techniques, they feel more confident lending further down the subprime um, risk course uh, ladder. And with subprime auto defaults continuing to rise, and I think the presentation mentions they reached $1.8 billion in June 2017, making up about 80% of all defaults in the market. What is, what's driving this particular credit performance? Is, this, is it the economy? Is it risk layering? Or are there other factors at play? So the, the, the macroeconomy overall is actually very good right now. Um, the, I, labor markets, uh, there's about 2.5% wage growth, which is a little under the 3% um, that most economists want, but it's steady. And GP, GDP growth is also steady at about 2% per year. Um, so the performance deterioration in the deep subprime space and across lending overall doesn't seem to be a factor of any economic shock or economic um, cycle, considering that we're still in the late stages of the expansion. Um, what all the evidence data in the data uh, suggests is that it's really a function of underwriting standards um, and risk layering, right? So when you look at uh, performance across uh, different subprime risk score buckets, you see that it's really subprime borrowers that also have low income, that maybe also have um, a long term on the loan to try to adjust the monthly payment down more to increase their ability to pay. So it's really this risk layering um, in that consumers obtain very expensive uh, loans relative to their ability to pay.
And why is it that um, it's the SunPy borrowers um, in the South that are defaulting the most? Why do you think that is? Because I mean, you just mentioned that subprime loans are highly concentrated to low-income borrowers. And I think in a report mentions it's in the southern United States. So what, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so um, the subprime lending patterns that we see in the South, um, it's admittedly difficult to disentangle uh, supply and demand forces. Uh, and the reason for that is um, the southern United States, uh, they perform worse on a variety of economic metrics. So it could be the case that um, there's more subprime lending simply because there's more subprime borrowers. Um, but as a share of the population, um, the southern states average about 35 to 43% um, subprime penetration rates, so the percentage of outstanding balance that is held by consumers with risk scores less than 660. Um, and the rest of the country, that's, that's about 30%. Um, so again, it could be the case that there's more subprime borrowers, or it could be the case that there's more subprime lending going on. Um, but in the data, we see that all else equal, the faults are higher in the South, and that's probably driven by lower incomes on average and also um, in the oil patch and other energy-sensitive markets, um, defaults tend to be uh, sensitive to fluctuations in energy prices. Um, also in the South, there's more commercial vehicle lending going on. Again, that's tied to uh, fluctuations in energy prices in the local economy. Um, and then uh, you do see anomalous places. So for example, in Mississippi, um, deep subprime leasing has exploded since 2013, and um, of the 12 different uh, risk score bands in our creditforecast.com product, um, Mississippi has the highest amount of outstanding lease balances held by consumers in uh, between risk scores of 300 and 529. Um, so in that case, there's definitely um, a concerted uh, subprime le leasing um, business going on. And actually also in the South, most recently, Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, um, leaving destruction and flooding behind. So I know that several lenders have already made known their support and have even deferred late payment fees and efforts to help those affected. But how, how do you think, in your opinion, how do you think this flooding will impact auto finance in Texas? Sure, yeah. So I think, um, for, first of all, we have looked a little bit uh, in our credit data to try to see like what impact other uh, hurricanes had had on different um, credit segments, and you see, for example, in, in credit cards, um, you see that after Hurricane Sandy, you see an increase in delinquencies and defaults. It's very prominent. Um, you don't see uh, that in the auto space, which is interesting, and it's something uh, that we're looking more into. Um, but I think that you're going to see an increase in uh, auto originations um, in the Houston metro area, simply as consumers get payouts from their insurance company, they're going to go uh, car shopping. Um, and they're obviously going to take out new loans if their old loans don't roll over, um, or take out another loan to make up the difference between what their residual value was and the price of the new car they're buying. And um, earlier you mentioned um, underwriting as well, and your report kind of details that payment problems appear to be a function of underwriting policy. So can you maybe elaborate more on, on what policies are attributing to you payment problems? And maybe if you have any sort of takeaway or advice for lenders on how they can alter their strategies to reverse this issue. Yeah, so the observation um, about the, the underwriting difference really comes when you look at the deep subprime uh, auto credit performance between the bank and non-bank space. Um, you see that in the non-bank space, uh, the deep subprime annualized default rate is about 
uh, annualized, and in the bank space it's 8%. And the gap between those two numbers has been growing over time, um, meaning that non-bank auto, deep subprime auto credit has been deteriorating at a faster pace. Um, and I think the obvious difference between those two origination channels is that lenders such as dealerships and independent finance companies or monoline lenders, um, they're not subject to the same kind of regulations that banks are, especially after the recession with Dodd-Frank um, and different stress testing regulations. Um, so in that, there are also anecdotal reports about a lack of income verification. Um, and that, to me, is, is probably the biggest driver um, of that underwriting policy. Uh, uh, the difference in the underwriting or the impact of underwriting policy on subprime credit performance. Um, there's uh, analysis by a company called Point Predictive um, that says that 1% of all auto applications have some sort of material misrepresentation, uh, and that for most auto lenders, less than 3% of dealerships are responsible for 100% of the fraud. Um, and what a lack of income verification does, or a lack of other types of verification, such as job verification, employment verification, um, is that it increases asymmetric information. Um, and that further reduces the lender's ability to appropriately price and uh, give out credit based on the consumer's ability to pay. Um, so I think that uh, addressing those underwriting concerns, so taking into account all the dimensions of a consumer's ability to pay, uh, would be better for the lenders because they have more information with which to uh, manage risk, and then it's better for the consumer because there's a reduced chance that there's a misallocated loan um, that they take out. And I want to shift gears to residual values now. How have falling residual values impacted credit losses, and do you think this pricing pressure is expected to continue? Residual, so residual values have been declining since about 2013, um, and my preferred measure is the used car and truck CPI, which is at its lowest level since 2009. Um, and that's really a function of increased off-lease volumes, um, which are cars that are coming to the end of their leasing term. Um, as leasing volumes built up over the past few years, they're all hitting the used car market in a supply shock at the same time. Um, and there's also an increase in new vehicle incentives. Um, so as new car sales took off, um, dealerships and uh, OEMs increased incentives to move inventory, and that reduces the relative price of new cars, making them more attractive. Um, but uh, I guess to get back to your question about what it did to subprime performance, it did two things. Uh, so the first is it raises loss given default values. So if a borrower defaults, that means that um, their car is going to be uh, relatively worth less than it would have been otherwise, um, meaning the bank doesn't get as much of that um, securitized collateral back. Um, and some analysis that I've done uh, suggests that a conservative estimate uh, for the effect on loss given default rates between 2013 and 2015 um, is in the sedan and subcompact market. Uh, those rates were increased by about five percentage points because of residual value declines, and in the truck and SUV category, they were increased uh, by about two percentage points. Um, the second thing it did is it raised um, loan-to-value ratios on loans, um, and that's really because of something called the trade-in treadmill, which is where um, as residual values fall, consumers have negative equity on their uh, loans for longer, so if they want to trade in that vehicle, they either need to pay off their pre-existing loan uh, because they're underwater, or they need to roll it over into the new loan balance. Um, and there's some data from Edmonds that suggests that 30% of all 2016 trade-ins uh, to new car sales involved an underwater loan that was um, kind of bundled in 
to the origination balance. Um, and that phenomenon has pushed LTVs as high as 130% in some instances. Um, so that increases uh, losses as well if the borrower uh, defaults. Um, insofar as if this is expected to continue, um, it really differs by segment. So in the sedan and subcompact segment, um, sales have been falling since 2013. There's just a general shift in consumer preferences going on uh, where the American consumer likes bigger trucks and SUVs. Um, so with that was a commensurate uh, decline in leasing volume. So insofar as off-lease pressure is concerned, um, we've probably seen the worst of it in the sedan and subcompact segment. But the truck and SUV segment in 2016, um, two-thirds of all new cars were uh, sold in the U.S. for truck or SUV. Um, and with that was a rise in the leasing rates, so much so that truck and SUV leases surpassed those of car and sedans in 2016. Um, so over the next few years, those vehicles are going to be hitting the used car market. Um, so we should, be, we should see a little more uh, residual value pressure in that segment. Um, but overall, it looks like uh, the steam is running out for new car sales, um, and that should augur well for uh, the used vehicle market in general. And Michael, my final question for you is just what, what is the outlook for subprime auto credit? Auto credit in general, it looks like we're uh, coming into the twilight phase of um, the current cycle. So that's evidence and you see a slowdown in outstanding balance growth, you see a slowdown in originations, you see a slowdown in subprime origination shares. Um, and data from the Federal Reserve and the Senior Loan Officer Survey, uh, since 2016, since the third quarter of 2016, um, a net positive percentage of respondents have indicated a tightening of auto credit. Um, so what all that means is that there should be less subprime credit coming in uh, to the market uh, in the next few years. Um, however, there is that buildup of subprime credit uh, in the market from the expansion, um, particularly in the non-bank deep subprime space. Uh, th that's where we're seeing some of the worst default performance, and that market's worth about $39 billion, uh, and that's 40% bigger than it was before the recession. Um, so given that those that performance is at uh, nearing historical highs, um, and the economy is very good, that segment is very sensitive to economic shocks that might happen. Um, so there's definitely risk there, and then there's also residual, vol residual value uh, volatility risk um, to where if we have a significant change, for example, um, the topic on everybody's mind is autonomous vehicles. So if for some reason autonomous ride-sharing were to take off tomorrow and it was perfect with perfect regulation um, and perfect consumer adoption, you'd see a really heavy hit in residual values. Um, so uh, some, that, that's another thing to keep in mind. Because um, some analysis that I've done suggests that residual value volatility by itself can increase losses by about a third. Um, so that's a non-negligible risk uh, to keep into account. But um, under our baseline outlook, so what we expect the economy uh, to do in the next couple years, um, we should start to see performance moderate and subprime lending slow um, as the auto cycle starts to come down on the other side of its um, expansion. Great, Michael. Well, that will do it for this episode. So thank you so much. And I want to thank everyone for joining us um, on this episode. And please stay tuned to autofinanceexcellence.org for more great podcasts. All right. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you.